The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome again to the HD Insights Podcast. This is our sixth episode, and today we're going to be talking with Carolyn Gray. Now, Carolyn is a clinical research nurse at the University of Kansas Medical Center, and we were privileged, uh, we had her in town here uh, at the HSG headquarters a few weeks ago, and we were able to sit down and talk with her on a subject that I think is, is going to be fairly unique um, so far for this podcast series, where we actually talk about the efforts associated with coordinating a clinical trial from the perspective of a trial coordinator. I think uh, a lot of you that have participated in clinical trials have most prominently worked with clinical coordinators, but there's some interesting facets to that role on a trial that I think will be of interest to you and and to people who maybe are considering participating in a clinical trial or who have been associated with a clinical trial. Now, I will preface this by saying this was a, a live in-person interview, so we had to work uh, quickly to get it set up, and we were in a space that wasn't super conducive to, you know, good quality audio recording, but we did the best we could. Um, I, again, I apologize in advance. I hate to take away anything from this this great interview with, with Carolyn, um, but it was just such a fantastic conversation that you know, I did my best with, uh, with the audio levels, and, and hopefully that works out. Again, episode six of the HD Insights podcast with Carolyn Gray. Carolyn, thank you for joining us on the HD Insights podcast. This is, this will be the first time that we've um, had a chance to talk with a study coordinator uh, on clinical trials. But before we get into that, and, and I know there's a lot of interesting topics um, to go down that, that people may not be aware of, whether they're p- participants, um, patients, families, or even other researchers. Uh, first, of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into... Huntington's disease, how did you get involved uh, and and get to the position where you are now? Well, I've been um, in my current position for 30 years at the University of Kansas Medical Center. And prior to that, my background was in emergency medicine Mm. um, and and critical care. And I was just ready for a change and applied for a position in the neurology department uh, that was part clinical and part research. Um, there was a new neurologist starting, uh, Richard Dubinsky. Uh, so we both started at the same time, and we've worked together for the past 30 years. Um, I started out in the movement disorders clinic, um, and we had just a handful of uh, individuals and, and families with Huntington's disease. And I just found them so interesting and so underserved. And it seemed like the visits 
uh, were just not adequate. We couldn't cover a fraction of what we needed to uh, for a new patient. 30 minutes for a return patient, 15 minutes. It just wasn't time to get into all the issues. And so I um, approached Dr. Dubinsky that I would like to start a separate clinic for Huntington's disease. Um, and I had met a wonderful nurse by the name of Carol Moskowitz. And any of you who have been around uh, with Huntington's disease or the HSG for, for a period of time would know who Carol is. Um, and she was such a mentor to so many of us. And I said I would start a clinic um, and also a genetic testing program, but I wanted to travel to an established clinic and see how they did things. So um, I uh, went out to visit with Carol and learned a great deal. I also spent a few days at Johns Hopkins um, and uh, came back to KU and started a clinic. We thought it would meet uh, once a month, and it very quickly became a weekly clinic and has been since uh, 25 years. I often ask um, the guests on the podcast about who their mentor is, and, and you've, you've kind of led with that. So what, what is it, just out of curiosity about Carol, that really um, kind of you know, put her it, as a mentor for you, you know, getting into this role? She's just um, an inspiration, I think, to so many people. She had such a love of what she, uh, what she did um, as a nurse, and she, uh, she was just always so enthusiastic, willing to go the extra mile, not only for her patients and their families, but for her peers. You know, she was always so willing to share what she knew, uh, and. Uh, I just always found her to be one of the biggest influences on those um, those early days I had with Huntington's disease. Going back to when you first got into, in, in you know, when you applied for um, a position on the neurology side, and you expressed the, you know, the the feeling about working with families um, with Huntington's disease. Is there a, a story that stands out for you that was, you know? really the inspiration for you or something that you know you recall to now when people ask what you know what what is the thing that you remember or that really touched you about um, you know somebody or a family dealing with the, the disease oh gosh that's a really hard question thinking back because there have been so many really profound stories I think I was just so struck by the generational aspect of it. Um, you know, seeing adult children with early symptoms bringing their parent in with advanced symptoms uh, and having children that they knew were at risk. Um, and just the, the nature, just the scope of the symptoms, it wasn't just looking at um, problems with movement, it wasn't just looking at problems with memory or psychiatric problems, it was the combination of them all and just how dramatically it affects every aspect of their life and their family's life. Um, and then as time went by, seeing it go from one generation to the next as patients. Um, and now we're in seeing some of the third generation of the families we originally started started working with. I think actually maybe, you know, one of the things I was most drawn to was the strength of the families. 
um, what they were dealing with and just how courageous they were in dealing with it. What for most of us would be absolutely overwhelming. And just the resilience of their spirit. What are some of the things that you've seen in working with families over generations where, you know, um, oftentimes it's a, it's a family member that becomes the, the caregiver. Um, and sometimes even that's, that may be a child in the family. What are, what are some of the things that you've seen families do to cope or, or that has helped them really um, help each other through the ordeal? That, that varies so much from family to family. Um, you know, I can think of families where certainly it's individuals at risk who are providing the care who go on to become symptomatic. And, you know, every day that they're providing that care, they know that they may be looking at the same future or if they've been tested and are gene positive, know with certainty that they'll be looking at that same future. On the flip side of the coin, I can think of a family, um, the, the wife of our patient, a gentleman was affected, his wife was his caregiver. Um, their child had onset in her early teens and she became her caregiver. She died in her early 20s and she's now raising her granddaughter. So she's just provided ongoing care and no one knows at this point if she will be providing another generation of care for HD mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. But I think some families, you know, they have an incredible support system. Uh, and I was recently in a support group and we, we were talking and uh, a woman was talking about how her family managed the care of her mother who has advanced disease and they keep her in their home. And they have uh, multiple family members stepping in to provide day-to-day -day care. And another person in the support group became quite tearful. And she said, I've never heard anything like that. And I just, it makes me so sad. I wish my mother could have had help like mm -hmm. that. Because in that family, there was no one to help. Yeah. With regards to, you know, your institution, and you, you know, like you said, when, when you first started, it was... Um, it was an underserved population, um, you know, trying to, uh, you know, make sure that they, they had the time. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of that since then. You know, what, what kind of population were you handling then compared to now? How has the, how has the, the visits evolved in that time as well for patients? Hmm. That's, a, that's an interesting question. I guess I've never really thought about in that way. Um, I think in the beginning it was such a learning curve, I mean, especially for me. I was learning about it with them in a way um, and seeing what they needed and then trying to target it, uh, the visits towards that. I think to some degree it's still still the same. You know, if you've seen one person with Huntington's disease, you have seen one person with Huntington's disease because everybody is so different. And I don't think you can really pre-plan a visit. I mean, you, we certainly have 
you know, we know we're going to do the UHDRS, we know we're going to do um, certain things, but I just try to be really flexible in the visits because I think sometimes the most important thing they come away from at the visit is just having a chance to talk with somebody. So I'm a nurse by profession, but I think I spend a lot of my time almost as a social worker um, in listening to what people have to say and trying to problem solve with them. But I think one of the most important things is it's a safe place for them to come and talk and feel like somebody really understands um, what they're trying to, to deal with. Now, your role on um, clinical trials and research projects as a, a site coordinator or a, a study coordinator, it's, it's different from that of a principal investigator and, and what, the, you know, what the primary research, uh, researcher may do in, in that regard. Can you, can you describe for the audience, what, you know, what is the primary role of the coordinator when it comes to a clinical trial? Well, I'm kind of in a unique position because a lot of people are strictly research or strictly clinical. They don't overlap. And I uh, am still fortunate enough to see patients clinically. Um, that's really my favorite thing. I'm, you know, just seeing people over time uh, in the clinic. Um, and getting to know them so well. And I, I often say that's both the best part and the worst part of my job. I have the privilege of getting to know them so well, but it's a very sad thing to see the decline or to see it move into the next generation. Um, so I really still do both clinical and research. It's a good combination because um, as coordinator, you have a lot of different roles that you fill. Um, but one of the things is recruitment, and so when you're part of a clinic, it makes recruitment much easier because you have a relationship with the families and the individuals with Huntington's disease, um, and it certainly helps in that regard. Um, so as far as what the coordinator does for studies, um, really it starts at the very beginning with all the regulatory work and getting everything um, through your internal review board uh, or your human subjects committee and ready to start and um, get all the forms in order and, um, and everything approved that you need uh, in order to start the screening process. Then it goes into uh, patient selection, who meets criteria, talking with them about who's interested in the study. It's really a lot of scheduling and coordinating, bringing people in. Um, and, the, and then once the study starts, there are specific rules that fall to the coordinator and specific rules that fall to the investigator. And those vary greatly from study to study. You know, there may be um, activities or scales that I've done for many, many years in a new study will come about where that, that activity is suddenly delegated to the investigator. Um, so we each have specific roles, but most of the day-to-day -day -day study activity, I think it would be fair to say, um, is with the, the coordinator and by far the most patient or uh, study participant interaction is with the coordinator. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. 
If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. From a patient perspective or, or a potential participant in a clinical trial, what are some things that, that you've experienced um, you know, over the years that potential participants may not be aware of? Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of buzz about you know, trials and getting involved in clinical trials, and certainly we want participants to get into trials because that's how, that's how we make new treatments available. But are there, are there things that a person that wants to get into a trial that you've seen they didn't. They weren't aware of, or they didn't account for, and it it has become a challenge maybe to get them enrolled, um, or something that you would, you know, convey to the potential participant population to say, here's what you can expect if you're interested in getting involved in a trial. Well, I think certainly clinically we we have a pretty good idea of what our population is and who would be um, who would qualify for specific. Um, study criteria. Um, part of what we do at each clinic visit is just kind of give an overview uh, and most especially with new um, patients. Let them know the current state of research, how hopeful things are, and, you know, what all the studies uh, going on are. We just kind of do a research overview at each visit so patients can be kept up to date. Although with things like this podcast or websites, um, frequently patients come in asking about specific trials that they've heard about. Um, one thing that they don't always understand is, is the whole process of inclusion-exclusion criteria. Um, and that if they want to participate in a study, why they might not um, meet that criteria. And they tend to often look at it as, um, well, you don't understand, I am willing to take any risk, uh, you know, it doesn't matter, I'll, I'll be, and the word they'll, they'll use is a guinea pig, because they're so desperate for a treatment. So I think we have a real responsibility to make people understand the difference between a research uh, study and a treatment, and what the different arms of the study are. You know, they may be assigned to placebo, um, you really want to assess their commitment when you're doing that because what you don't want is somebody going into a trial thinking they're going to have a vast improvement and when they don't see that dropping out to go to the next study. So I think a lot of it is about education. And I'm not sure if that answered your question or I No, that's No, I think the in, the inclusion exclusion criteria actually is very valuable and there definitely is um, you know, that push to want to be involved in a trial because of the, the desperation and, and wanting to, you know, potentially be on the trial that something becomes the, the treatment or, or the cure, but that's not really the intent of right. the trial, correct? Right. And, you know, you get into a lot of other issues. Some, some studies may require a caregiver um, not only um, involved on a daily basis or a certain number of days per week, but uh, to attend visits. And, and the sad truth is not everybody has 
a caregiver. Um, some people are pretty much on their own. And so, you know, sometimes that can be difficult and they don't understand why, why that would um, preclude them from participation. Um, you know, another issue is uh, cancer. We've had a couple of people uh, that have gone through treatment for cancer and uh, once they get the all clear and finish chemo or uh, you know surgical intervention, um, don't understand why that would prevent them from going to a study when they're really not in it. You know, they don't have the medical clearance to do that, so they really um, don't see the bigger picture, but only see their their um, overwhelming desire to have access to any treatment that they think would be beneficial. There are a number of other um, elements to a clinical trial that the, the coordinator um, has to deal with and, and that you know participants may not be aware of. It's not just interaction um, with the patients. It's not just the you know the rating scales, but there's um, there's as, there's all aspects of documentation, um, adhering to the study protocol. Uh, obviously, is very crucial. Ultimately, because uh, these are endeavors that can be audited by the FDA. And I know, you know, you've been through that experience and, and you're helping out the HSG by presenting um, a topic on FDA audit readiness for site coordinators and investigators. Describe that process. What, what you know, when, uh, when do audits typically occur? How can they occur? You know, and what's, what's involved? What does that mean for a clinical trial typically? Well, audits can occur for different reasons. Um, you may have an audit because you're a very high enrolling site and the drug is being submitted for um, FDA approval and they'll come out and look at all of your records. In that case, you're notified ahead of time and have a chance to get everything in order. Um, audits can also be uh, for what's called for cause, meaning a problem has been identified. And in those cases, the um, FDA auditor just appears at your facility without um, notice and and the audit begins then. Um, when you're audited they just go through all the documents and they're looking for compliance making sure you have met um, all the guidelines that were in the study protocol um, looking carefully at how subjects were consented did they understand what they were um, participating in and did they participate of their own free will um, that there was no coercion uh, from anyone, whether it be family or site. Um, so they're really just looking to make sure that everything was done correctly um, to assure the safety of the subjects and people that would be taking the drug in the future should it receive approval. In terms of, um, let's the amount of time that you let let's say a, a you know a patient comes in for a, a trial visit, how what percentage of the time would you say is spent with the patient versus time required for all you know the administrative tasks associated with the trial? What's what's kind of that mix? Well, that is a really really good question, and that's something that I think as coordinators we need to be really proactive about because. Uh, when our time is being considered, you don't just look at time spent face-to-face -face with the subject. 
And I think that's probably one of the most overlooked things when you're budgeting your time. Um, there's a lot of preparation ahead of time. You know, there are um, typically um, we'll receive all of the case report forms through a study portal and we'll go in and print them out. Well, that takes time to print all those forms. Then there are headers that have to be filled out. There are laboratory kits. Um, there's a lot of preparation that goes into the visit. Then you will see the study participant. There may be labs. Um, in some cases, you may have um, research personnel assisting you with, with uh, uh, preparation and shipping of the samples, but in a lot of cases you'll be doing it yourself. Um, so that can take well over an hour after a visit to get all those specimens ready to be shipped, um, especially if you need dry ice or special shipping instructions. And then after you've finished all of that, you go back. You still have to do drug accountability, making sure that they're taking it um, as they're supposed to be, that there's adequate compliance. Um, you'll finish filling out your forms, uh, scoring any testing that you've done, and then you have to sit down um, and do all the data entry because most studies now are um, electronic. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll enter everything from your uh, original source documents um, then into the electronic database. And with that, as you're entering it, usually the, you know, the ideal is to have it entered within 24 hours. Um, but visits can be 50 or 60 pages easily of uh, forms. Um, and then I try, every time I sit down to do data entry, I always try to log in and look for queries. You know, any questions that are coming back to me, you know, these two sources don't match. You, you say they're on a medication for high blood pressure, but in their medical history or uh, comorbid conditions, high blood pressure is not mentioned, which is correct. So you need to look for those queries from the sponsor, address those in a timely fashion as well. So I think it's about half and half, hmm. uh, you know, half time with the patient, half time uh, completing the visit. Yeah. Um, Carolyn, one of the one of the big topics, and and certainly an important topic in a clinical trial, is the the notion of retention, participant retention, keeping participants that have enrolled in a trial engaged and uh, seeing them through to the end of of the trial. Um, can, Tell us a little bit, because, because you are interacting with patients so much, you know, what are the, some of the strategies that, that you've used when you've, you know, you've had patients that are considering dropping out or um, you know, maybe looking at other trials and wanting to leave one for the other? How, do you, how have you handled that? What are some of the, the techniques or tactics? I think one of the biggest advantages you can have is to have a relationship with the subjects and their families. It really allows you to talk more openly and to get a feel for what their thoughts are going into the study and what their level of dedication to the study is. And I'm real open with individuals prior to enrollment about the length of the study, what it means to commit to a study, and understanding, of course, that at any point they can drop out. That is completely their, their choice without any kind of discrimination in future treatment. But at the same time, I want them to understand that while they have that right, they are making a commitment. 
once they enter a study. But there are limited research dollars and to have an individual go into a study just to wait until a better one comes along or what they perceive as a better study comes along, they can really jeopardize multiple studies. Mm -hmm. um, because those individuals can't always be replaced. So, um, you know, we really try to discuss that aspect. Now, if somebody has a reason that they just have to drop out, um, the ideal would be to have them remain in the study without uh, taking the study drug, but still coming for the visits or intent to treat. Um, and that's the next best option if they do have to drop out. But I think the most important thing is just that early on education of what it means to be in a drug trial, what our commitment to them is, and what their commitment to us in return is. Before we wrap up, um, and, and I do appreciate your, your time sitting down with us for the interview, um, I want to ask you, in, in terms of your your work, your professional career, or just anything, um, you know, what is it that you consider to be your, your proudest accomplishment? I think that's a pretty easy one. It's just actually starting the clinic. Um, it's, I think, I hope at the end of the day, it will have made a real difference in people's lives, that they felt like there was a place to come um, where they could speak open, openly and people did understand um, what they were going through. I so frequently will have families or patients uh, call me or write to me and say, um, thank you for everything that you do. We couldn't have done it without you. And my response is, I don't feel like I did very much. I wish I could have done more. Um, but they said, no, you were there. You were always there, and we knew we could we could call you. So I think just starting the clinic and watching it grow has been um, something that I'm very very proud of. And throughout that time, you know, I was um, just young as I transitioned over to this uh, this job, and I really. Uh, I've said it before, I grew up with the HSG, and much of what I learned, I learned from the HSG, and I could never have had better teachers. Um, there were so many, you know, and Ira Schulzen was just such an, an amazing uh, leader, um, and I was always so incredibly impressed how inclusive he was of everyone on the research team. Just the fact that there were um, coordinators on the executive board, that we were included into that. Um, I just feel like I learned how to do research from the HSG. Well, we appreciate having you, you know, as part of the, the group, and it's it's been very inspirational talking with you uh, for the podcast. and. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, that concludes our interview with Carolyn Gray from the University of Kansas Medical Center. Again, a longtime HSG member. Um, she's served on numerous observational and clinical drug trials in movement disorders. And we were thrilled to have her in person to sit down and chat with us about her role and her experience as a clinical coordinator. 
We have some fantastic guests lined up for some upcoming episodes of the HD Insights podcast. We are able to speak with some folks as part of the HSG annual meeting in Sacramento, California. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group. Thank you.